Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Now, some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. When I started interviews for the Musicians of the Midnight Sun project in 2003, I had never heard of Albert Canadian or the Chieftones. A few of the interviewees from that first series talked about how some musicians from the date show were a part of this epic band. It was a story larger than life, worthy of any Hollywood plot, and almost mythological coming out of the North. I learned that Albert was living in Yellowknife and arranged to meet with them. I admit to being a bit more than naive when I walked into the interview, but he graciously tolerated my clumsy technique as an interviewer. Albert's musical life journey took him through various communities and residential schools in the NWT before landing at a residential school in St. Albert, Alberta. There he joined four other young Indigenous musicians, Vince and Barry Clifford, Jack Cecil and Richard Douse, and the Chieftones were born. On a side note, John Radcliffe was the head residential school supervisor in St. Albert at the time. He had also been a supervisor at Acacia Hall in Yellowknife in the early 1960s. John made sure there were musical instruments in the common room there and was instrumental in encouraging and facilitating the Acacia Hall band, the Arctic Ramblers, to play local gigs in Yellowknife. He was producer, manager, and booking agent for the Chieftones until the late 1960s. John left his position at the school in St. Albert to work with the band and negotiated their signing to the William Morris Agency. The Chieftones went on to perform with the Beach Boys, Jerry Lee Lewis, and many other popular music icons from the mid to late 1960s. In the decades following his time playing with the Chieftones, Albert has served and continues to serve his home community of Zatikwe, Fort Providence, Northwest Territories. He still plays guitar, sometimes with his friend Johnny Landry, at festivals and cultural gatherings in the North. Since he retired, Albert has written a book titled from Lashami, a memoir of his early years being raised on the land and his residential school experience. 
music has been a constant companion for Albert. From hearing the slavey drum songs as a boy in Zatikwe, to playing electric guitar with the chief tones in Madison Square Gardens, to drumming with the Decho drummers back in his home community of Fort Providence. In Albert's own words, you experience the full cycle of music, and you're back. I grew up in uh, Fort Providence during the 50s at the residential school, and then I went over to Fort Resolution. I asked the Father Superior to, that I wanted to go to school down south, so they sent me to Fort Resolution, which is south across the lake. <laughs> <laughs> and the summer previously, I went down south. And my first experience down there, first train ride, first bus ride, was in the 50s, and uh, I was about 10 years old then. And at that time, there was a couple of people that came over to a residential school in Fort Rest who played guitar and sang for that, you know, for that gang there. And then when I went to the hostel in Fort Smith, we had a couple of guitars there, so I didn't know how to play anything yet. I tried it anyway. I learned a few chords, and I never learned to read music. And that's how I started, you know, back then. And uh, learned a few chords. And then when I came home, that one summer I was home. We were surveying on the highway, so I was home. And that one weekend they had a, a square dance. Then there was two guys playing guitar, and there was a couple of fellows there, and that one guitar player went to dance, so I went over, took his place, and I just followed the other guy playing guitar, watching his hands and changed when he changed and things like that, so that's how I learned. Uh, years later, I, I was able to, you know, to learn there was more chords besides, you know, A, B, C, there was minor chords, the augmented chords, and the flats. So I learned that later on. I didn't know anything about that at that time. And that's how I began. How old would you have been when you played that first square dance? I think I was about 14, I think, at the time. Because uh, I went home for the, for the summer. And just being 14, we were collecting um, rocks from the highway and you know, the stakes, the survey stakes and mm -hmm. stuff like that, or did that. So, so that, that would have been the highway coming up here in, mm -hmm. in like 1960 or so? Yeah, on the other side. On the other side. On the other side of the river. Okay. They were just surveying the side. I think it was for the right-of-way for the park, for the phones. Yeah, phone okay. Poles. Yeah. Because the couple of years later, NT, you know, CNT, mm -hmm. was running uh, telephone lines. And I worked in Providence at the time when they were trying to bury the, the cables underneath the water. And then the following spring, the, the ice picked it up. Just ripped it all out. Yeah. And that was it. That would have been right around 1960? Yeah. Uh, 60, I was here in the Kisho Hall. My first year, I think, in the 60s. Yeah. Okay. Because I left here in 63. You know, in the spring of 63, I left here. That was before any roads were coming up this far. Was there a highway from the south up to... No, the highway was here already because they built the highway in the 57, I think, 58. So, okay, so the road was there. we were able to go home at Christmas time for nine bucks from here to Fort Providence on a bus. Oh, wow, okay. It was nine bucks. Then later on, it went to $13. And then the next time I came here, 
for the bus was 54 buses. <laughs> <laughs> in talking with the other players who were playing here at that time in those mm -hmm. years in the late 50s and the early 60s, what kind of music were you listening to and how were you able to get it, like radio or records? Or We were really exposed to the music of the day, you know. It was primarily uh, country and some rock with uh, Elvis Presley and you know, Jerry Lee and the others, you know. And there was a lot of uh, one-time hit people, you know, at the time, like... Uh, Johnny Burnett and the Everly Brothers were there too. The Everly Brothers were a little mix of country and rock. You know. And these were the, the music that we were exposed to up here. So were you listening to that over the radio? Were you getting No, we, we got it by um, a record because CBC at the time was primarily um, classical stuff, you know, in middle of the road, Maravani stuff, and uh, Hugo Montenegro. Percy Faith, that kind of, you know, the orchestra stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's what they had. So our music was primarily taken from records, 45s, and those LPs. Were you able to buy those here in Yellowknife? Yeah, we were. Uh, strangely enough, we got them from the Bay, and also from this jewelry store up here. It was run by old man Polak, I think. That store there, and... I don't know where else, but we got our stuff from there. You were able to get the music of the day. He was carrying the current popular music mm -hmm. of the day there. Learned uh, the words from the, the record itself, or we wrote them down. And then you learn the melody, and that's how you learn to play by ear. majority of the people I knew didn't read music, they just played by ear. So, after your experience playing the first time at that square dance, and when you were 14... Did you go on to play in other bands? No. We had a group at the Cajun Hall. Our supervisor there had to gather you know, a bunch of uh, students who played guitar, violin, piano, and drums. So there was about 10 or 12 of us. There was about five or six of us that, that played at the Cajun Hall. Dances on weekends, yeah. Sometimes. And we even made a trip to Hirver, I remember one time. It was in April we went. Even then, I don't think any of us read any music. And then we just sort of banded together and just played. It all depends on who sang and who was playing what. You know. There was a lot of um, instrumental hits back then uh, with the uh, Dwayne Eddy and some Les Paul stuff and Chet Atkins and things like that. But the, the ones that were danceable, like the guitar, you know, that boogie, whatever they call that, you know, everybody played that. So there was a lot of instrumentals, and there was some fiddle music that uh, these guys played. And so I was I was with them. I played in that, and that's good. Do you remember the names of any of the people that you played with at that time? The two that I remembered was uh, Brian North. Brian North was my roommate. Bill Elliott, Alfred Lockhart, Tiny, we call him Tiny, Leo Thomas. He was tall at the time. He used to be chief at West Point. He was a tall guy, so we call him Tiny. 
<laughs> but these are the people I, I remember. Mm. You were at Akecho Hall for it's about three years, you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, doing a lot of playing, or, like, just, like you say, just on weekends, like, where you were rehearsing? <clears throat> one weekends and whenever. Nothing really planned. Nobody pursued anything professionally, you know. Some people like um, Gordon Velbrin was one of them. Yeah, I think his last name was Velbrin, sure. But he was one of our singers. No, Gordon Cardinal, I think, that's his name. The other one I'm thinking about, Henry, Henry Velbrin, but Henry didn't, didn't play. He was one of the singers, and once in a while he'd learn new songs, and we, you know, we all get together just to learn the chords and things like that. So and just learn them off the the forty fives that yeah. you're picking up at the stores. And yeah, and nobody played really played any lead, you know. Some did try play lead, but it just fits in with the chords that they did. That was it. Similar to what Buddy Holly does, you know. There's three of them, and he plays lead and rhythm at the same time. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing something like that. So you were listening to the guitar instrumental music. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask you what what kind of guitar players you listen to, or, or we listen to the players of the day, like yeah, Chet Atkins and some Les Paul. I think the Ventures and Dwayne Eddy with his Rebel Rouser, whatever they call it. <laughs> and then there was. Uh, Sound types like the the two Indians from South America called Los Indios Tapajaras. You know, they came up with a hit called Maria Elena. Real nice, easy oh. listening stuff. Eh? Guitar instrumentals. Yeah. Yeah. That seemed to be a thing that was really big at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to say that it died out, but I think yeah. it's probably always Johnny still happened. You know? Like Johnny and the Hurricanes. You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Years later, I met John in the Hurricanes when we were playing in Madison, Wisconsin. We were jamming with him on stage on Sunday afternoon. I remember that. And here, when I was in high school, we used to dance to their music, like uh, Rick River Rock and the others that they did. Never dreamed that I would be in a position like that, but yeah. I met them. Yeah, it just seemed like the guitar instrumentals at that time, it was really big and maybe sort of helped rock and roll get on its feet. I mean, you got some of those early really, really good guitar pickers. And then it just, the, the guitar instrumental is sort of, it hasn't sort of resurfaced. At the time, the thinking, I think, among a lot of people is that you play guitar, you play, you know, the lead, like, one instrumental. You didn't sing it. It was only later on, like, when Buddy Holly and those guys came and they played lead and they sang, like, uh, yeah. Richie Valens and those guys did that. So that's when it it came around. Yeah, you know. sort of evolved. And the other was that... Uh, like originally, Elvis, um, it, it didn't seem like he he played, you know, guitar. He just sang, and there was a backup group. Yeah. That. that was it. Only later on, we saw him with guitars and stuff like that. But uh, I think that was just uh, thinking of the day at the time, and that evolved, like I said, with uh, Buddy Holly and the gang. But at the time, too, the folk was. Uh, yeah, like Tom Dooley, the, the Highwaymen, the Four Freshmen, and they sang Greenfields and One yeah. Souls Greenfield. Beautiful song. And the Kingston Trio. And those others you know, at the time. You know. It was not really rock, but it was kind of folk 
So ballots and stuff like that. So that also evolved. Mm-hmm. You know. And you were getting that stuff up here too as well? Yeah, we got... They played a lot of that middle of the road at CBC at here CBC, too. They yeah. played the you know, Kingston Trio, the Focus yeah. people. Did you guys ever ever try and pick up broadcasts from outside CBC or anything like that? Well, it, it was anything? pretty hard to pick anything like pick that up you know, okay. up here. But um, back home in Fort Providence, we used to pick up Peace River or Edmonton. I forgot which station but we used to pick up. It was pretty clear on oh. some days. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I wonder. But here, you know, a lot of static. You'd, you'd pick up a station and you'd listen to it for couple of minutes and then it sort of fades away. Too much rocks, I think, around yeah, here. Yeah, you know? yeah. I don't know. So when you were at Akecho Hall and doing most of your early early playing mm-hmm. was at Akecho Hall, they had the instruments there? Yeah, it was available there. And was acoustic there. guitars, electric guitars? Uh, acoustic and electric. We had a couple of them upstairs in the common room too. Where, you know, they're sitting there, so people would just come up and pick on it for a while and that was it. They couldn't belong to everybody as such, so people played when the, whenever they can. You know. mm-hmm. Whoever wanted to play, played. Yeah. It was there. Set of drums and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. You're out of high school and you're working the summer camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did the opportunity to to go down south and play? Well, and it was going to Alberta College. At the time, I didn't know you were supposed to register to go to college and things like that. But uh, old man Norm, Norman, I forgot his last name. He was the placement officer for uh, Northern students in, uh, in Edmonton. And I thought I'd get a hold of him and he'd put me through to Albert College. So I went, got on a bus. At the time, bus fare in 64, I think, in or to. Uh, Edmonton was 54 bucks from Fort Providence, or 52, another. And one way, so I went. And when I got there, I got a hold of my cousin, Leon. He was supervising at the Indian Residential School at uh, St. Albert. So <clears throat> I asked if I could stay with him for a while, a couple of days. I got a hold of uh, Norm. He said I had to register during the summer to get accepted into, because the way it is now, it, you know, this, this, the classes are going to start, eh? and kind of late, and the only way you can get in is probably in January. So I went back over there, and uh, the head supervisor at the Indian Residential School was, uh, he used to supervise here, John Radcliffe. He was the one that got us started in the, the band, and he was there. And he had this um, four other boys there who played, so played in the sort of the band, the Indian boys like, and they were from uh, northern BC. Uh, Jack was from Ianch, and the other two brothers, Clifford and Clifford boys, uh, Vince and Barry came from Kidwanga. The drummer came from Kidwanku, and they were at residential school. They used to be trained in. They sent them all the way to Alberta so nobody ran away. <laughs> so they were there at residential school and they had this little band going and play. So I listened to them. 
and one day they were playing in that, what we call the chapel. And they were practicing in there, and I was sitting there listening to it. Finally, one of the guys said, come up here, sing, sing a song for us. So I went and sang with him. It was good, you know. They asked me if I played guitars, I said, yeah. So when the, the lead guitar came up to sing, I used to play rhythm. And then I learned some chords in, um, on the bass. So I found out the bass guitar was similar to the first four strings on the guitar. So it was easy enough to find where the chords were and yeah, play bass. Sure. Uh, whoever sang, I used to take his place. We played around Edmonton, you know. We went to Lloydminster and we played at the Vegreville, Wainwright. Whoever happened to have okay. a special event, we played there. And uh, it's just like a fair. We played around there, did that, collected money. And we found out that as a group, we had to belong to a musician's union. <laughs> so I think local 308 or 304, whatever it was in Edmonton, we signed up with them. And then once you sign up with a musician's union, you need a booking agent, somebody that books you around. So after that, we met a guy. He said he was from, from Milwaukee or someplace. And he needed X number of dollars to get us going. We were going to meet him in uh, Toronto. I think it was seven grand that he needed to get it started. So we gave him the money, and then we took off to uh, to Toronto. We got to Toronto, and there was no Larry. Larry's he was gone. Nobody knew him. And in order for us to play around Toronto, we need to get musicians union there too. So. We stayed at a place called the Casa Loma Motel, down on Lakeshore Drive, I remember that. Living on donuts for a week. <laughs> and that was a good start. Uh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we got a job. After being there for a week, we finally got a job up in um, Pembroke, outside Pembroke, called Chateau. Hotels. It was on an island where a lot of lumberjacks and the army boys from Pembroke used to come around. And we played there for two weeks. For Christmas. I think it was 400 bucks a week. We stayed at the hotel there. Got our meals. After that, we got a, a gig in, uh, in Sault Ste. Marie on the American side at the Del Mar Hotel. So we went over there. We went to the American side. We were there for New Year's. Yeah. It was sort of a sad location for us because New Year's Day everybody was homesick, you know, like wondering what, what people were doing at home and the boys were talking about, you know, people going from house to house visiting, you know. And I used to tell them that back home people used to go out at midnight and shoot off rifles, huh? Doom, doom, doom. That was, uh, you know, a side time for us, time, first time away. You know, from home so far away. For me, it wasn't that bad because I went to a residential school myself, too. Most boys did, too. From there, we made our way to Milwaukee. And the address we were given, and we looked for the place, was a parking lot. Nobody knew Larry Bertelli. Um, so we lost out on seven grand, I think, that's 
amount of money they gave. So anyway, we got there in, and the booking agent, we got a booking agent in Milwaukee, and he said, you give, he'll give us a circuit. So we started off in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. From Sheboygan, we made our way to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, La Crosse, Cedar Rapids, and on over to down south like that, Indianapolis, you know, Peoria, Illinois, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, India, and South Bend, Indiana, back to Chicago. We had our, a circuit like that. And finally, after a year of doing that, we weren't going anywhere. We weren't going to other places, like the guy told us. So one day we were in uh, Milwaukee. We were playing at a place called the Palladium. And one of the booking agents from uh, William Morris Agency, Bob Taylor, is his name, came over to see us. And uh, our manager, the supervisor, you know, he was Keisha Hollier. He became our manager. He traveled with us. And, this is John Radcliffe? Uh, and uh, spoke to him and told him about our situation, what happened to us and things like that. So William Morse bought out our contract to the booking agent in Milwaukee. So we were able to go all over the place. And we ended up uh, from L.A. to Boston. We played in Boston, too. Boston and uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, anything there. We ended up on TV to tell the truth. And then we were going to Ed Sullivan or something, and then there was uh, a strike. So we never got a chance to get to get there. And then later on, we were opening acts for the Beach Boys. We traveled with them around the Midwest. We started off in Milwaukee and then Madison, Wisconsin, down over Peoria, South Bend, Indiana, in Notre Dame College, and lots of students. Uh, like Fort Wayne was also college town. But anyway, there was sort of a circuit that we did with the Beach Boys. At what point in the, the Beach Boys sort of rise to to fame or whatever, that was that was that in their early days, or was that were they already there was, catching on? There was uh, they were already there. Barbara Ann was was there, I think, and we played in Madison Square Garden. You know, you're standing, you're, you're in a place where, you know, you used to listen to hockey games. You know, when we were in Fort Smith, I was a kid <laughs> in Fort Smith, and we used to listen to hockey games. I mean, Robert Bolio and those guys we used to listen to radio hockey games coming out of, uh, you know. Madison Square Gardens, you know, and here we were in the, on the revolving stage. A whole bunch of people in there, I don't know how many thousands. And then the next place we went with to was the Boston Boston Gardens. Had about 20,000 kids in there yelling away. And here, you know, we also listened to hockey games coming out of there, you know. And here we were in there. It gives you a sense of awe, like, oh, for sure. And you've Never in your life dreamed of being in a place like that, you know. In Madison, when we were there playing, on weekends, like uh, Mondays, we had Monday, Sunday and Mondays off. So Monday nights we went to the other clubs and there was a place called the Gun Club. And there was a group there called the Buckinghams. 
<clears throat> we watched them, and they were pretty good, very good. Once in a while, they'd let us come over and we'd jam with them, things like that. And then we went away to an eastern tour, like we went to our usual route, and we stopped at, at South Bend, Indiana, and then we went to Fort Erie, and then on down to Boston, to finally to Providence, Rhode Island. We were gone for about four months, and on the way back, we heard a new group, Buckingham's, from the radio, you know. And later on, when we came back, our booking agent told us that the Ashland Oil Company wanted us to do a tour for them Christmas time, to Kentucky, from Louisville, you know, to Ashland, and in that, you know, Kentucky area. So we did that. And then we had the Indian regalia, you know, with, you know, buckskins, white buckskin outfits, and, and uh, headgear, you know, the bonnets, and those kids, like the Ashland, and the Ashland Oil Company brought the whole family of the working company in, in Ashland, you know, for Christmas party, and we went up there, those kids were just out of what we did. Yeah. Nobody paid attention to Santa Claus, like, <laughs> he was sitting <laughs> over here, there, and all the kids were crowded around us, eh? That was a special tour that we did for Ashland Oil Company, so we did that for them. In December, a Christmas tour of where their employees were yeah. in, in the back end of Kentucky, like I say the back end, I mean, in the bush type of thing. You stop for gas and it's really hard, you know, trying to understand what people were saying. For if sure. their accent was on oh, point. So you have to ask them to, to repeat themselves, you know? Like, yeah. You know. Okay, I just stop. I'm trying to, I, I want to try and get a snapshot of mm -hmm. you guys. Were you writing your own songs by then, or were you were you doing covers of other yeah. bands? Yeah, well, uh, we we wrote some of our own stuff. I had a one of those notebook type of things where I used to scribble, you know, something that somebody says. I like, in, like in Kentucky, there was one guy that uh, they were staying there, and this trucker was talking about backing up, you know, and backing up into a fence or something like that he was talking about. But nothing happened. But he, he said something that he says, I should have done what I did, you know, so so I wrote that down and then we made a song out of that, you know. And then there was the other ones that we did. I got a couple of forty fives hanging on my wall in Providence in my house. So I was gonna I was gonna ask you, you got in and recorded those yeah. did William Morris agency help you with that or did you do, did you have to do that on your own? Well <clears throat> William Morris agency just sort of pointed us to the recording people, eh? like in, in Lake Geneva, just in, um, still in Illinois, but it was called Lake Geneva, and there's a place there where it's out of the way where you, you spend about four or five days there, and you're recording two songs, and, and you do it a little bit, and then the suit will take a break, and the next day you listen to it, and uh, maybe you should try it try something in the middle this way so you do it again and then you're gone they go fishing and then in the evening we come back and you listen but you don't want to do anything you just let it be so eventually after five days that's not done but when it came out they had other things in there so so they put some other stuff in after you guys went in and recorded yeah like another uh, like a little jingle in there someplace little jingle I mean by that is a little guitar lick, you know, in high pitch, 
you pick it up, you can hear that what they did that. Just fix it up. This concludes part one of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Albert Canadian. Please scroll down to hear part two of his epic interview.